The War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells. Chapter 12 What I Saw of the Destruction of Weybridge and Shepperton. Hello, and thank you for joining us at Public Domain Playhouse for yet another chapter of the immortal classic H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. Tonight, we're going to take a look at Chapter 12, what I saw of the destruction of Weybridge and Shepperton, which is quite a mouthful to say quite quickly. And hopefully it'll end up being a happier story than Chapter 11, which we'll look at right before we look at Chapter 12, just to do a quick recap. If you've been listening along with us every single edition of this podcast, I try and give a little bit of background into H.G. Wells' life. If you were with us from the very beginning, you heard about his childhood, how that led to him becoming one of the most prolific writers in history. H.G. Wells was even nominated for a Nobel Prize in literature more than once, and he had a huge impact on generations to come. As a matter of fact, War of the Worlds is still having an impact today. They're still remaking this movie. There's a BBC television series that's been updated to be with our times. But Wells was the one who created the trope of alien invasion. Interestingly enough, if you recall uh, one of the episodes we talked about how there was a popular theme in British literature at the time of alien invasion. But in this particular case, homo sapien aliens, not necessarily those from outer space, least of all Mars. Wells definitely had a huge impact on lots of culture and lots of people's careers, and Orson Welles, no relation, was one of them before Orson Welles actually became a famous movie director doing Citizen Kane, Welles ran a weekly radio broadcast on the Columbia Broadcasting System radio network on his The Mercury Theater on the Air, which he directed and narrated. Orson Welles selected H.G. Wells' novel, The War of the Worlds, which had been published originally in 1898, to be broadcast live as a Halloween episode at 8 p.m. on Sunday, October 30th, 1938. The episode became famous for allegedly causing panic among its listening audience, though the scale of that panic is disputed, as the program had relatively few listeners. The Mercury Theater on the Air was a one-hour program And in this particular one, it began with theme music for the show and an announcement that the evening show would be an adaptation of War of the Worlds. Orson Welles then read a prologue which closely resembled that of H.G. Wells' novel opening, except that it had been updated to move the setting to 1939. For about the next 20 minutes, the broadcast was presented as a typical evening of radio programming but then it was interrupted by a series of news bulletins. The first few news flashes occurred during a presentation of live music. 
and they describe a series of odd explosions observed on the planet Mars. Followed by a seemingly unrelated report of an unusual object falling on a farm in Grover's Mill, New Jersey. The music returns briefly, but then it's interrupted by a live report from Grover's Mill. How convenient. Where police and officials of, and a crowd of onlookers are surrounding a strange cylindrical object that fell from the sky. You know that things escalate from there. On the radio program, the Martians emerge from their cylinder and attack using a heat ray, which the panicked reporter at the scene describes until his audio feed abruptly goes dead. This is followed by a rapid series of increasingly alarming news updates, detailing a devastating alien invasion taking place all over the country and the futile efforts of the U.S. military to stop it. The first portion of the show climaxes with another live report from a Manhattan rooftop as a giant Martian war machine releases clouds of poisonous smoke across New York City. The reporter mentions in passing that Martian cylinders have landed all over the world as he describes desperate New Yorkers fleeing and dropping like flies, the smoke inexorably approaching his location. Eventually, he coughs, falls silent, and a lone ham radio operator is heard mournfully calling, Is there anyone on the air? Isn't there anyone? With no response. Only then did the program take its first break. Boy, today a radio program that long, giving you that much material, probably would have had seven or eight breaks stuck in between all that good information. The second half of the show shifts to a conventional radio drama format, and it follows the survivor, played by Orson Welles, dealing with the aftermath of the invasion and the ongoing Martian occupation of Earth. As in the original novel, the story ends with the discovery... <gasps> oh, I can't tell you that yet. We're not there, and there's absolutely no spoilers on Public Domain Playhouse. You have to listen in to find out what happened. Wells's War of the Worlds broadcast became famous for supposedly tricking some of its listeners into believing that a Martian invasion was actually happening due to the breaking news style of storytelling employed in the first half of the show. The illusion of realism was furthered because the Mercury Theater on the air was a sustaining program without commercial interruptions. The first break in the drama was about 35 minutes after the introduction right after Martian war machines were described as devastating New York City. So the popular legend about this radio broadcast holds that some of the audience may have been listening to the Chase and Sanborn Hour with Edgar Bergen and then tuned into War of the Worlds during a musical interlude, thereby missing a clear introduction indicating that the show was a drama. Contemporary research, though, suggests that this happened only in rare instances. In the days after the adaptation, widespread outreach was expressed in the media. 
The program's news bulletin format was described as deceptive by some newspapers and public figures, leading to an outcry against the broadcasters and calls for regulation by the Federal Communications Commission. Nevertheless, the episode secured Orson Welles' fame as a dramatist. If you join us next time, we'll actually take a look at the production of Orson Welles' War of the Worlds radio broadcast. But for tonight, we're getting ready to look at Chapter 12, What I Saw of the Destruction of Weybridge and Shepherdton. Boy, it just kind of rolls right off the tongue, doesn't it? But we're going to find out what's going on there here in just a minute. But first, let's do a quick recap of Chapter 11 so that we're all on the same page. And as always, our notes are brought to you by schmoop.com. S-H-M-O-O-P. Actually, they don't bring it to you at all. I go to their website and take their notes, but I'm going to go ahead and give them credit because Schmoop does an excellent job of bringing a little bit of humor to literary notes, which, as we all know, can be a little bit stiff at times. So looking back at Chapter 11... At the window, if you recall, the narrator came inside, changed his clothes, experienced one of his patented mood swings, then goes upstairs, of course, to look out of his study window. The storm experienced in the chapter before that was over, but since it's night, all he can see is darkness and, of course, fire. His secure little world has been turned into a fiery chaos. The narrator thinks a little bit about the tripods. Are they alive or are they machines? Then he continues to come up with a neat analogy. What would some animal think about our ironclads or steam engines? Before the narrator makes too many connections between the Martians and humans, a soldier interrupts his thought process by climbing into his garden. And of course, the narrator, being a polite Englishman, invites him in for tea and crumpets, I believe. So the artilleryman comes in, happy to see another human being. The soldier cries when he tells his story, and our narrator listens with a curious forgetfulness of my own recent despair. The soldier reveals that he is an artilleryman who was saved by dumb luck when the rest of his unit was blown up. The horse he was riding on stumbled and tossed him into a ditch right when all the ammunition exploded, killing everybody around but him. Then, without a hint of humor, the artilleryman tells the narrator that it smells just like burnt meat. Which, uh, you know, kind of makes sense because it was burnt meat, but we know you didn't want to be reminded of that one. Especially if you're a vegetarian. The artilleryman explains he's trapped under his horse while the tripod destroyed the entire area. After it left, he crawled away and eventually ended up in the narrator's garden. When the artilleryman finishes with his story, it's daytime and they can see the destruction of the area. Never before in the history of warfare had destruction been so indiscriminate and universal. So all in all, chapter 11, nothing good happens. Let's see if chapter 12 is a little bit more cheerful. And with a title like, What I Saw of the Destruction of Weybridge and Shepperton, How Can You Go Wrong? 
Thank you again for joining me. I'm Bart. I enjoy reading to you and adding special effects as well. Let me know what you think about Public Domain Playhouse's productions by subscribing or telling a friend. I would appreciate that. So tonight, let's get on with the chapter at hand. Chapter 12. What I saw of the destruction of Weybridge and Shepperton. As the dawn grew brighter, we withdrew from the window from which we had watched the Martians and went very quietly downstairs. The artilleryman agreed with me that the house was no place to stay in. He proposed, he said, to make his way Londonward and thence rejoin his battery, number 12, of the horse artillery. My plan was to return at once to Leatherhead, and so greatly had the strength of the Martians impressed me that I had determined to take my wife to New Haven and go with her out of the country forthwith. For I already perceived clearly that the country about London must inevitably be the scene of a disastrous struggle before such creatures as these could be destroyed. Between us and Leatherhead, however, lay the third cylinder, with its guarding giants. Had I been alone, I think I should have taken my chance and struck across country. But the artilleryman dissuaded me. It's no kindness to the right sort of wife, he said, to make her a widow. And in the end, I, I agreed to go with him, under the cover of woods, northward, as far as Street Chotham before I parted with him. Thence I would make a big detour by Epsom to reach Leatherhead. I should have started at once, but my companion had been in active service and he knew better than that. He made me ransack the house for a flask, which he filled with whiskey, and we lined every available pocket with packets of biscuits and slices of meat. Then we crept out of the house and ran as quickly as we could down the ill-made road by which I had come overnight. The houses seemed deserted. In the road lay a group of three charred bodies close together, struck dead by the heat ray. And here and there, things that people had dropped, clock, a slipper, silver spoon and the like, poor valuables. At the corner, turning up towards the post office, a little cart filled with boxes and furniture and horseless, heeled over on a broken wheel. A cash box had been hastily smashed open and thrown under the debris. Except the lodge at the orphanage, which was still on fire, none of the houses had suffered very greatly here. The heat ray had shaved the chimney tops and passed. Yet, save ourselves, there did not seem to be a living soul on Maybury Hill. The majority of the inhabitants had escaped, I suppose, by way of the old Woking Road. The road I had taken when I drove to Leatherhead, or they had hidden. We went back down the lane, by the body of the man in black, sodden now from the overnight hail, and broke into the woods at the foot of the hill. We pushed through these towards the railway without meeting a soul. The woods across the line were but scarred and blackened ruins of woods. For the most part, the trees had fallen, but a certain proportion still stood. 
dismal gray stems, dark brown foliage instead of green. On our side, the fire had done no more than scorch the nearer trees. It had failed to secure its footing. In one place, the woodman had set at work on Saturday. Trees felled and freshly trimmed lay in a clearing with heaps of sawdust by the sawing machine and its engine. Hard by was a temporary hut, deserted. There was not a breath of wind this morning, and everything was strangely still. Even the birds were hushed, and as we hurried along, I and the artilleryman talked in whispers and looked now and again over our shoulders. Once or twice we stopped to listen. After a time we drew near the road, and as we did so we heard the clatter of hooves and saw through the tree stems three cavalry soldiers riding slowly towards Woking. We hailed them, and they halted while we hurried towards them. It was a lieutenant and a couple of privates of the 8th Hussars, with a stand like a theodolite, which the artilleryman told me was a heliograph. You are the first man I've seen come in this way this morning, said the lieutenant. What's brewing? His voice and face were eager. The men behind him stared curiously. The artilleryman jumped down the bank into the road and saluted. Gun destroyed last night, sir. I've been hiding, trying to rejoin battery, sir. You'll come in sight of the Martians, I expect, about half a mile along this road. What the dickens are they like? asked the lieutenant. Giants in armor, sir. Hundred feet high. Three legs and a body like aluminium, with a mighty great head and a hood, sir. Get out, said the lieutenant. What confounded nonsense. You see, sir, they carry a kind of box, sir, that shoots fire and strikes you dead. What? Do you mean a gun? No, sir. And the artilleryman began a vivid account of the heat ray. Halfway through, the lieutenant interrupted him and looked up at me. I was still standing on the bank by the side of the road. It's perfectly true, I said. Well, said the lieutenant, I suppose it's my business to see it too. Look here, to the artilleryman. We're detailed here clearing people out of their houses. You better go along and report yourself to Brigadier General Marvin and tell him all you know. He's at Weybridge. Know the way? I do, I said and he turned his horse southward again. Half a mile, you say, said he. At most, I answered, and pointed over the treetops southward. He thanked me and rode on, and we saw them no more. Farther along, we came upon a group of three women and two children in the road, busy clearing out a laborer's cottage. They had got hold of a little hand truck and were piling it up with unclean-looking bundles and shabby furniture. They were all too assiduously engaged to talk to us as we passed. By Byfleet Station, we emerged from the pine trees and found the country calm and peaceful under the morning sunlight. We were far beyond the range of the heat ray there, and had it not been for the silent desertion of some of the houses, the stirring movement of packing in others, 
and the knot of soldiers standing on the bridge over the railway and staring down the line towards Woking, the day would have seemed like any other Sunday. Several farm wagons and carts were moving creakily along the road to Adelston, and suddenly through the gate of a field we saw, across a stretch of flat meadow, six twelve-pounders standing neatly at equal distances pointing towards Woking. The gunners stood by the guns waiting, and the ammunition wagons were at a business-like distance. The men stood almost as if under inspection. That's good, said I. They will get one fair shot at any rate. The artilleryman hesitated at the gate. I shall go on, he said. Farther on towards Weybridge, just over the bridge, there were a number of men in white fatigue jackets throwing up a long rampart and more guns behind. It's bows and arrows against the lightning, anyhow, said the artilleryman. They haven't seen that fire beaten yet. The officers, who were not actively engaged, stood and stared over the treetops southwestward, and the men digging would stop every now and again to stare in the same direction. Byfleet was in a tumult, people packing in a score of hussars. Some of them dismounted, some on horseback, were hunting them about. Three or four black government wagons, with crosses in white circles and an old omnibus among other vehicles, were being loaded in the village street. There were scores of people, most of them sufficiently sabbatical to have assumed their best clothes. The soldiers were having the greatest difficulty in making them realize the gravity of their position. We saw one shriveled old fellow with a huge box and a score or more of flower pots containing orchids, angrily expostulating with the corporal who would leave them behind. I stopped and gripped his arm. Do you know what's over there? I said, pointing at the pine tops that hid the Martians. Eh? said he, turning. I was explaining these is valuable. Death! I shouted. Death is coming! Death! And leaving him to digest that if he could, I hurried on after the artilleryman. At the corner I looked back. The soldier had left him, and he was still standing by his box with the pots of orchids on the lid of it, and staring vaguely over the trees. No one in Weybridge could tell us where the headquarters were established. The whole place was in such confusion as I had never seen in any town before. Carts, carriages everywhere, the most astonishing miscellany of conveyances and horse flesh. The respectable inhabitants of the place men in golf and boating costumes, wives prettily dressed, were packing, riverside loafers energetically helping, children excited and for the most part highly delighted at this astonishing variation of their Sunday experiences. In the midst of it all, the worthy vicar was very pluckily holding an early celebration, and his bell was jangling out above the excitement. I and the artilleryman, seated on the step of the drinking fountain, 
made a very passable meal upon what we have brought with us. Patrols of soldiers, here no longer hussars, but grenadiers in white, were warning people to move now or take refuge in their cellars as soon as the firing began. We saw as we crossed the railway bridge that a growing crowd of people had assembled in and about the railway station. And the swarming platform was piled with boxes and packages. The ordinary traffic had been stopped, I believe, in order to allow of the passage of troops and guns to Chertsey. And I have heard since that a savage struggle occurred for the places in the special trains that were put on at a later hour. We remained at Weybridge until midday, and at that hour we found ourselves at the place near Shepperton Lock where the Way and Thames join. Part of the time we spent helping two old women pack a little cart. The Way has a trouble mouth, and at this point boats are to be hired, and there was a ferry across the river. On the Shepperton side was an inn with a lawn, and beyond that, the tower of Shepperton Church, it had been replaced by a spire, rose above the trees. Here we found an excited and noisy crowd of fugitives, and yet the flight had not grown to a panic, but there were already far more people than all the boats going to and fro could enable to cross. People came panting along under heavy burdens, one husband and wife were even carrying a small outhouse door between them, with some of their household goods piled thereon. One man told us he meant to get away from Shepperton Station. There was a lot of shouting, and one man was even jesting. The idea people seemed to have here was that the Martians were simply formidable human beings, who might attack and sack the town to be certainly destroyed in the end. Every now and then, people would glance nervously across the way, at the meadows towards Chertsey, but everything over there was still. Across the Thames, except just where the boats landed, everything was quiet, in vivid contrast with the Surrey side. The people who landed there from the boats went tramping off down the lane, the big ferry boat had just made a journey. Three or four soldiers stood on the lawn of the inn, staring and jesting at the fugitives without offering to help. The inn was closed, as it was now within prohibited hours. What's that? cried a boatman, and shut up, you fool, said a man near me to a yelping dog. Then the sound came again, this time from the direction of Chertsey. A muffled thud, the sound of a gun. The fighting was beginning. Almost immediately unseen batteries across the river to our right, unseen because of the trees, took up the chorus, firing heavily one after the other. A woman screamed. Everyone stood arrested by the sudden stir of battle, near us and yet invisible to us. Nothing was to be seen save flat meadows, cows feeding unconcernedly for the most part, 
and silvery pollard willows motionless in the warm sunlight. The soldiers will stop them, said a woman beside me, doubtfully. A haziness rose over the treetops. Then, suddenly, we saw a rush of smoke far away up the river, a puff of smoke that jerked up into the air and hung, and forthwith the ground heaved underfoot, and a heavy explosion shook the air, smashing two or three windows in the houses near, and leaving us astonished. Here they are, shouted a man in a blue jersey. Yonder! Do you see them? Yonder! Quickly, one after the other, one, two, three, four of the armored Martians appeared, far away over the little trees across the flat meadows that stretched towards Chertsey and striding hurriedly towards the river. Little cowled figures they seemed at first, going with a rolling motion and as fast as flying birds. Then, advancing obliquely towards us, came a fifth. Their armored bodies glittered in the sun as they swept swiftly forward upon the guns, growing rapidly larger as they drew nearer. One on the extreme left, the remotest that is, flourished a huge case high in the air, and the ghostly, terrible heat ray I had already seen on Friday night smote towards Chertsey and struck the town. At the sight of these strange, swift, and terrible creatures, the crowd near the water's edge seemed to me to be, for a moment, horror-struck. There was no screaming or shouting, but a silence. And then a hoarse murmur and a movement of feet, a splashing from the water. A man, too frightened to drop the portmanteau he carried on his shoulder, swung round and sent me staggering with a blow from the corner of his burden. A woman thrust at me with her hand and rushed past me. I turned with a rush of the people, but I was not too terrified for thought. The terrible heat ray was in my mind. To get underwater, that was it. Get underwater, I shouted unheeded. I faced about again and rushed towards the approaching Martian, rushed right down the gravelly beach and headlong into the water. Others did the same. A boatload of people putting back came leaping out as I rushed past. The stones under my feet were muddy and slippery, and the river was so low that I ran perhaps twenty feet scarcely waist-deep. Then, as the Martian towered overhead scarcely a couple of hundred yards away, I flung myself forward under the surface. The splashes of people in the boats leaping into the river sounded like thunderclaps in my ears. People were landing hastily on both sides of the river, but the Martian machine took no more notice for the moment of the people running this way and that than a man would of the confusion of ants in a nest against which his foot has kicked. When, half suffocated, I raised my head above water, the Martian's hood pointed at the batteries that were still firing across the river, and as it advanced, 
it swung loose what must have been the generator of the heat ray. In another moment, it was on the bank, and in a stride wading halfway across. The knees of its foremost legs bent at the farther bank, and in another moment, it had raised itself to its full height again, close to the village of Shepherdton. Forthwith, the six guns, which, unknown to anyone on the right bank, had been hidden behind the outskirts of that village, fired simultaneously. The sudden, near concussion, the last close upon the first, made my heart jump. The monster was already raising the case generating the heat ray as the first shell burst six yards above the hood. I gave a cry of astonishment. I saw and thought nothing of the other four Martian monsters. My attention was riveted upon the nearer incident. Simultaneously, two other shells burst in the air near the body. As the hood twisted round in time to receive, but not in time to dodge the fourth shell. The shell burst clean in the face of the thing. The hood bulged, flashed, was whirled off in a dozen tattered fragments of red flesh and glittering metal. Hit! shouted I, with something between a scream and a cheer. I heard answering shouts from the people in the water about me. I could have leapt out of the water with that momentary exultation. The decapitated colossus reeled like a drunken giant, but it did not fall over. It recovered its balance by a miracle and, no longer heeding its steps, and with the camera that fired the heat ray now rigidly upheld, it reeled swiftly upon Shepherdton. The living intelligence, the Martian within the hood, was slain and splashed to the four winds of heaven, and the thing was now but a mere intricate device of metal, whirling to destruction. It drove along in a straight line, incapable of guidance. It struck the tower of Shepherdton Church. smashing it down as the impact of a battering ram might have done. Swerved aside, blundered on and collapsed with tremendous force into the river out of my sight. A violent explosion shook the air. a spout of water, steam, mud, and shattered metal shot far up into the sky. As the camera of the heat ray hit the water, the latter had immediately flashed into steam. In another moment, a huge wave like a muddy tidal bore, but almost scaldingly hot, came sweeping round the bend upstream. 
I saw people struggling shorewards and heard their screaming and shouting faintly above the seething and roar of the Martian's collapse. For a moment, I heeded nothing of the heat, forgot the pat need of self-preservation. I splashed through the tumultuous water, pushing aside a man in black to do so and, until I could see around the bend. Half a dozen deserted boats pitched aimlessly upon the confusion of the waves. The fallen Martian came into sight downstream, lying across the river, and for the most part, submerged. Thick clouds of steam were pouring off the wreckage, and through the tumultuously whirling wisps I could see, intermittently and vaguely, the gigantic limbs churning the water and flinging a splashing spray of mud and froth into the air. The tentacles swayed and struck like living arms, and, save for the helpless purposelessness of these movements, it was as if some wounded thing was struggling for its life amid the waves. Enormous quantities of a ruddy brown fluid were spurting up in noisy jets out of the machine. My attention was diverted from this death flurry by a furious yelling, like that of a thing called a siren in our manufacturing town. A man, knee-deep near the towing path, shouted inaudibly to me and pointed. Looking back, I saw the other Martians advancing with gigantic strides down the riverbank from the direction of Chertsey. The Shepperton guns spoke this time unavailingly. At that, I ducked it once underwater, and holding my breath until movement was an agony, blundered painfully ahead under the surface as long as I could. The water was in a tumult about me and rapidly growing hotter. When for a moment, I raised my head to take breath and throw the hair and water from my eyes, the steam was rising in a whirling white fog that at first hid the Martians altogether. The noise was deafening. Then I saw them dimly, colossal figures of grey, magnified by the mist. They had passed by me, and two were stooping over the frothing, tumultuous ruins of their comrade. The third and fourth stood beside him in the water one perhaps two hundred yards from me, the other towards Laleham. The generators of the heat rays waved high, and the hissing beams smote down this way and that. The air was full of sound, a deafening and confusing conflict of noises. The clangorous din of the Martians, the crash of falling houses, the thud of 
Trees, fences, sheds, flashing into flame, and the crackling and roaring of the fire. Dense black smoke was leaping up to mingle with the steam from the river, and as the heat ray went to and fro over Weybridge, its impact was marked by flashes of incandescent white that gave place at once to a smoky dance of lurid flames. The nearer houses still stood intact, awaiting their fate, shadowy, faint, and pallid in the steam, with the fire behind them going to and fro. For a moment, perhaps, I stood there, breast high in the almost boiling water, dumbfounded at my position, hopeless of escape. Through the reek, I could see the people who had been with me in the river, scrambling out of the water through the reeds like little frogs hurrying through grass from the advance of a man, or running to and fro in utter dismay on the towing path. Then suddenly, the white flashes of the heat ray came leaping towards me. The houses caved in as they dissolved at its touch and darted out flames. The trees changed to fire with a roar. The ray flickered up and down the towing path, licking off the people who ran this way and that, and came down to the water's edge not fifty yards from where I stood. It swept across the river to Shepperton, and the water in its track rose in a boiling wheel crested with steam. I turned shoreward. In another moment, the huge wave, well nigh at the boiling point, had rushed upon me. I screamed aloud and scalded, half-blinded, agonized. I staggered through the leaping, hissing water towards the shore. Had my foot stumbled, it would have been the end. I fell helplessly in full sight of the Martians upon the broad, bare, gravelly spit that runs down to mark the angle of the way in Thames. I expected nothing but death. I have a dim memory of the foot of a Martian coming down within a score of yards of my head. Driving straight into the loose gravel, whirling it this way and that and lifting again of a long suspense and then of the four carrying the debris of their comrade between them now clear and then presently faint through a veil of smoke receding interminably as it seemed to me across a vast space of river and meadow and then very slowly, I realized that by a miracle, I had escaped. And there you have it for Chapter 12 of War of the Worlds, what I saw of the destruction of Weybridge and Shepperton. 
From the sound of it, the destruction was pretty much universal, and I'm not sure Weybridge and Shepperton are actually going to rebuild, but maybe there were. Sounded like there were a couple of houses that only needed new roofs. So we're going to find out next time in Chapter 13, How I Fell In with the Curate. Thank you for joining us here at Public Domain Playhouse. If you liked what you heard, please feel free to subscribe so you never miss an upcoming edition. Or feel free to recommend us to a friend who would read the classics, except they don't have the time. And this is actually kind of fun. We add sound effects and make it a little bit updated without actually interfering with the literature at hand. And with H.G. Wells, a giant in literature, we need to pay him proper respect with this homage. Join us next time at Public Domain Playhouse, your source for the literature of antiquity today. And as always, we'll see you in the next chapter.